I want to um, take you back to the second century. Do you remember that? Why are you nodding? We remember it through history books, I suppose. But if you go back to the second century, there was a guy by the name of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was uh, what we might call a Christian apologist. Now, he wasn't apologizing for Christianity in the sense that, oh, I'm sorry about being a Christian. Or, I'm so-. What that means is he was a defender of Christianity. Uh, that's the idea of being an apologist. It's, it's someone who is in defense of something. You're familiar with the Apologetics Press uh, website and that uh, great uh, bunch of folks down in Montgomery. We've utilized them perhaps even here. Uh, the whole idea behind the um, uh, uh, apology group is just to be defenders of the faith or the Christian system. Well, this fellow, Justin Martyr, he was being railroaded, if you will. They were, they were saying, look, Justin, I'm on first name basis with him, look, Justin, I just want you to know that uh, you're an atheist. What? I'm, I'm an atheist. Yes, you're an atheist. What do you mean I'm an atheist? Don't, don't you know what it means to be a Christian? A, a Christian is not an atheist. A Christian is someone who belongs to Christ. A Christian is someone who is owned by the Christ, a slave to the Christ, as we talked about last week. And so I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian. I belong to God. I believe in God. That's not what Justin did. But instead, what he did was he went along with it. Uh, can you imagine that? as a Christian, being referred to as an atheist, and saying, you got me. You're spot on. I am an atheist. Now, what do the Greeks mean by that? They, when they, they called him an atheist, what, what do they mean by calling him an atheist? Well, they meant you are not beholden to all of our gods, all of our many gods, all of our, can we use this word, idols idols. And so, in that sense, Justin went along with it and said, got me. I'm not an, a- I-, I am an atheist, because I don't believe in all of that stuff. And so, what I'm trying to do, go ahead and go to the first slide, since this is not going to work clearly. I want us to talk about the need for Christians to be atheists in the way that Justin Martyr was describing, okay? I don't want a single person to leave this room today or get off the internet. Don't leave the internet yet if you're watching on the internet. I don't want anybody to leave saying, well, Neil said we ought to denounce Christianity and, and all become atheists. That's not what I'm saying. We better believe in the one God of the universe. And if you don't think I believe that, then just go back and watch last week's lesson we talked about, or not last week, but recent weeks, they all run together for me, but this idea that there is one God, right? There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope if you're calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There is a God of heaven, and as Christians, we need to submit ourselves to that one God. But when it comes to all of these false gods around us, whether it be some type of an image such as is depicted behind the lettering on the screen behind me, or it is anything else that would stand between you and the creator of the universe. We need to be an atheist as far as that goes. We don't need to believe in all of that stuff. We don't need to put that 
between us and our God. Now, by way of introduction, I want to uh, just speak a word of, of thanksgiving and appreciation uh, and admiration, if you will, to Brother Wayne in his class this morning. I thought it was just a masterpiece, so well done. Uh, just a masterpiece. And if I could have had my druthers, I would have just sat down and let him get up here and keep going because I know he had more. I know he had more material that uh, he would have liked to have covered. Um, and I would have enjoyed that. In fact, I was so encouraged by last week's lesson and knowing that we were getting into 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and ultimately the book of James that I decided to do my own digging into the book. And, and isn't that what teaching is supposed to do to us as students in the pew. It is to challenge us and encourage us and then motivate us to get into the Word in, in more depth than maybe we would have otherwise. Uh, and that's sort of what it did for me. And so I got into First Peter, again, one of my favorites, and tried to see what could I find new? What could I be impressed with that's new? And it's this concept of Christians being atheists, so to speak, that I discovered in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to study together from this passage. Well done on the slide transition there. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Let's just read through this, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to notate some phrases. It says, Dearly beloved... I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, I really want to camp out in these two verses, but to appreciate kind of what's going on here, we are going to have to backtrack a little bit, Okay. And so you'll forgive me for maybe looking, Brother Wayne, at some material that you'll cover in the future weeks. But if you look at that first phrase, dearly beloved, we're most familiar with this perhaps when it comes to a specific gathering of people. You know what gathering of people I'm talking about? Some of you are smiling. You remember that. Um, Standing up here, I remember it like it was 25 years ago, almost, almost was 25 years ago. Uh, I was standing right up here, and I was marrying Emily. Some of you didn't know that Emily and I got married in this building. Well, we did. And so uh, Chuck, uh, Emily's brother-in-law, was uh, officiating the wedding. I think this was his first uh, big wedding, if you will. The church house was full. Back in the back, back there, I remember seeing Eddie and Jeannie Gilpin. I don't know if they had even preached their first sermon yet. I don't recall that for a certainty, but they were getting ready to start. And Chuck was up here, and he may have said, though I don't know for sure, he may have said, dearly beloved. Dearly beloved. What does that mean, anyway? Did Chuck know everybody in the audience? Did he... Love everybody in the audience? I know Chuck all right, so I'm going to say yes, he did. But what does is, what is dearly beloved really mean? It's kind of the idea of a sincere affection and admiration that leaves someone to 
words of genuine feeling. Such as, I love you. In fact, the phrase, dearly beloved, is from, ultimately from, agapao, which means, I love you. Peter's writing to you folks, I love you. Another expression he could have used in a moment like this, though it might not have been as appreciated, uh, we would understand it a little better now, he could have used more of a pet expression such as, Hun, someone that you love dearly, do you have pet words for them? Maybe you call them hun or honey. Maybe something like that. There's some restaurants I've gone to, and even coffee shops I've gone to, one right here in town. Uh, I always hope it's the same uh, person who comes to the window because she always calls me hun. I kind of like that. And then I start to think, wait a second. She can't call me hun. She doesn't even know me. So I know she doesn't really have that agapao, I love you feeling, right? That's something that's reserved for those of us who have a close, intimate connection with. And Peter is identifying that in the moment. He's saying, hun, or dearly beloved, those that I care about for greatly. Why is he saying that? Well, let's dig into the text just a little bit. If we back up to chapter 1. Back up to chapter 1. A number of things that they have in common here, one of which we spoke about this morning in class, this idea of being elect. So we're not going to go into that, but if, if you just keep reading through the first chapter, maybe you're scanning this. Maybe you're like I am when I'm sitting in a class or listening to a sermon. I, I'm, I'm hearing, I'm going along, but then I see these things that pop up and I've got to jot down notes or I've got to underline something. And So I hope that's you this morning, but you see something like verse 8, whom having not seen you love, and whom though now you see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Here's something that we share in common, and that is an intimate connection with our Christ, an intimate connection with one another as brethren, and a knowledge that we're saved and on our way home. And then we go a little further in the text, in verse 18, it says, For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from the vain or empty conversation or manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hun, i got to tell you, dearly beloved, I want to tell you, we are so closely connected because of Jesus. And Jesus loved you, and Jesus loved me, and he gave his life's blood for us, and so that we could have this very special, common connection. I have been craving an opportunity to start traveling and doing short-term mission trips again. For about 15 years, I've had the opportunity to travel to all of the continents except for Antarctica. I can't imagine why I haven't been to Antarctica, but, um, but I've been to all of the continents except for that one, and I have taught the gospel in numerous countries, and I have friends all over the world. And there are some that I have gotten to know a little bit better because I've been there more, such as like Belor Zanchi, Brazil, Tanzania, East Africa. And there are some folks there, and I can see their faces and their names. 
And I am anxious to get back and to see them again. I want to see them again. Because we have a relationship. I love them. They love me. And we can, we can spend time together reminiscing with one another and sharing in, in, uh, in moments of, of, uh, of, of joy with one another just because of a connection. But more importantly than that, we have the connection of the blood of Jesus. And Peter is talking about that. Dearly beloved, we have something in common. Look at verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again. Love one another. Love one another. All right, we could spend a lot of time there, but I, but I won't because Brother Wayne needs something to talk about in, a couple, in the next couple of weeks. Look at that next phrase here in this passage. I beseech you. I beseech you. In other words, I want to paracaleo. I want to call you along my side. Would you hear me? That's what Peter's saying. Would you hear me? Would you come over here and stand next to me? Would you take your hand and cup it behind your ear and hear everything that I'm saying to you? Can we share together? That's the idea. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. That expression beseech is used over a hundred times in the Bible. Now I haven't done the, the breakdown to see how many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's used over a hundred times in the Bible. In the New Testament, it ha- is used many times with respect to Jesus. Uh, begging Jesus, beseeching Jesus for something, asking Jesus, Jesus, will you come along my side? I think about even the demons use that term beseech, asking something of Jesus. There are other occasions in Scripture where we read about the disciples speaking to one another and, and asking one another, would you come along my side? Would you come stand next to me? Would you sit with me? Would you help understand with me? I think about places like Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I beseech you, brethren, brethren, would you come alongside by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This speaks to what's going on even here in 1 Peter chapter 2. I think about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, about verse 10. You remember that occasion in, in that great passage where, you know, you've got, you've got Chloe, and really all we know about of Chloe is that she is a concerned Christian in, uh, in Corinth, and she is calling out, and she is, she is asking, she's asking for help, and she gets a, this letter to Paul, and Paul reads the letter, and Paul writes back to them and says, you don't need to be a divided people. He said, I beseech you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but contrast that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And Peter's doing that in this moment. He says, dearly beloved, I love you. Will you come alongside of me? I've got something I need to share with you. Something that's really important. What's really important, Peter? What is it that you really want us to get a hold of? Ultimately, if I can give you some insight into what is coming, 
What I really want you to get a hold of, Peter says, my dearly beloved, hun, be different. Don't be like everybody else. Don't be like the world. But rather, be a unique atheist in the sense that you, you put all of the idols, everything that would stand between you and the Lord, of, the creator of the universe, put all of that stuff away. Because he says in the previous two verses, but you are a chosen generation. A chosen generation. The, another translation, I was trying to think of what it's called. I think it's the world translation, actually. It uses the expression race. Race. Maybe another newer translation uses that same expression. But, but you are a chosen race. Now, there have been some people throughout the history of time who have talked about, well, there is a chosen race. There is a chosen race of people, and if you're not of this race, well, then you're not of the chosen race. I would go along with it so far as the understanding that there is a chosen race, but it's not what the world outside of these walls have often referred to as a chosen race. It's how God defines it. What does that mean? As John Shannon, who's been here before to, to do some gospel meetings, he would say, uh, well, there's the black race, there is the white race, and then there is the polka dot race. Well, all of that's bogus, right? There is the Christian race. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the need to understand that we are a unique chosen race or chosen generation Christian, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy, dearly beloved, dearly beloved. I want to go a little further here. And let's, let's look at the type of people that we are. So we know he says, dearly beloved. We know he says, come stand alongside and get a hold of something. He says, I want you to understand that you're strangers and you're pil pilgrims. What do you mean by strangers and pilgrims? Surely that is a reference to the same thing. Well, this is where, Brother Wayne, when you go back and you study, you get motivated and challenged, you go back and you study a little more and you want to know a little deeper. Strangers and pilgrims are two different concepts. The idea of being a stranger, well, people say, well, Neil, you are strange. Well, I know. I get it. I'm kind of weird, but that's not what it's talking about here. Stranger means a resident of a nearby place. That's what it means, a resident of a nearby place. And it's not talking about West Virginia or North Carolina or Tennessee or anything. That's not what it's talking about. Ultimately, as strangers, if we're Christians, we're residents of a nearby place, which is what? Heaven. That, that's our home. That, that's, that's where we want to go to, is we want to go to heaven, because that's our home. So we are residents of a nearby place, strangers and pilgrims. A pilgrim means that we are temporary dwellers but we're residents from a nearby place. So we're dwelling here in a place that's unfamiliar, let's say. 
in a place that's different. It's not like home. In a place that I might want to visit, but I don't want to stay. It's kind of like New York City. Some of y'all have been to New York City recently. I've been there a few times. I like visiting. There's no way in the world I would live there. That's the way we ought to feel about this place. It's okay to visit. But I want to go home. Would you permit me to do something? Open your Bible to number 240, or Bible, your songbook, number 247. 247. We're going to sing a song together. 247. That's right. Dust it off. I see you. Just dust it off a little bit. It's been a while since we've used this thing. 247. I'm going to turn my mic off so it doesn't sound like I'm singing a solo out over the internet. For that. So we're, we're here, we're strangers, we don't belong here, we're pilgrims, we're temporary residents on our way to a better place. Let's go a little bit further in our slide transition. As residents in this place, we need to be able to abstain from fleshly lusts. Specifically, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts, fleshly pertaining to the body or physical lusts, a, a strong desire for, actually the word translated means a violent desire for, fleshly lusts which war against the soul, who you are on the inside your spirit, that which is going to be separated from the physical, if you please, that which is going to live forever in eternity. There's a battle between this flesh and through this spirit constantly. And he says you've got to work at this. You've got to work at it. What are those fleshly lusts, if you will? Galatians chapter 5, the next slide. Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 19. The Bible says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, 
lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. He goes on to say, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we, some way, somehow, we've got to stand against those fleshly desires that are warring against the soul so that we can ultimately go home to heaven and be with God. You say, how do we do it? Well, the answer is ultimately this. That's really the only way that you can do it. Now, people have tried to do it different ways. They've tried to do it on their own merit. They've tried to stay, against, uh, stay away from sin just because, well, I'm a strong person, and because of my individuality, my strength, I, I'm not going to do what's wrong. not going to work. The Bible says that the Word of God is both defensive and offensive in nature. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that the Word of God is quick or it's living. It's powerful or it's mighty. It's sharper than any two-edged sword or it's efficient. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrows and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So the Word of God is what? It is a powerful document God-breathed document that is designed to keep my heart from sin. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 119 and verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. In Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto... It shows me the way, light unto my path. That's what I need in order to be able to stand against what the Bible calls the wiles or the deceptive deceit of the devil. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Next he says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. The word conversation there is just a word that means manner of life. When the Gentiles, if I can use that expression going back to the second century illustration with Justin Martyr that we began our lesson with, when the Gentiles saw Justin Martyr, they said, you're an atheist. And maybe for a split second, he said, wait a second, you are crazy. I'm no atheist. You're the atheist. But he, he didn't go there. In fact, he said, no, you're right. I, I, I am an atheist from, from the standpoint that I don't, I don't go along with all of these false idols. I don't go along with these false gods, these false deeds. I don't do that. So from that standpoint, I'm an atheist, but I believe in the God of the universe. And they could see the depth of his appreciation so much that they could say, there's something different about you, Justin. I wonder if when people look at us, if they can see the same difference. When they look at us, they see such a, a light, the light of Christ shining from our lives that they say there's something different about that person. The Bible says that we are to, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Do people see our light? Do they taste that salt? You're the salt of the earth. Do they taste that? Do you make God's word palatable, if you will? If you look at the next slide... I don't know who coined this phrase, but I think it's good. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's pretty good, isn't it? 
if you were picked up and the accusation was you're being charged for being a Christian and then after being put in that holding cell you go appear before the judge and all of the witnesses come around and you stand before that witness box and all of these bystanders will they be looking at you and will they say yeah a Christian for sure or would they say I, I, I know I know why he was picked up. He was picked up for being a Christian. And I know why we've kept him in the lockup. We, we locked him up because he was a Christian. But now that we've got him standing trial, I, I couldn't say based on the evidence that he was a Christian. What about you? Go back to 1 Peter 2. Look at, look at the next phrase. It says that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Look at those words. They may behold. You and I have a tremendous responsibility as Christians, as we just alluded to, to allow our light to shine. Next slide. Christians should not overrate their position in the church Sometimes people want to elevate themselves in the kingdom and say, well, I'm a, I'm a really special elder. I've known some special elders. We've got some special elders here. But from a standpoint of, a, of an elder identifying himself or an eldership even identifying themselves, saying we are the elite. We are the example for every other elder, every other. Preachers. Deacons. Bible class teachers, Christians who tout who they are in the kingdom and want everybody to know that there's somebody in the kingdom and you are somebody, but not because of you, but because Jesus made you somebody. But we also shouldn't underrate our influence for the church. You and I all have a powerful influence to be a great light in the community and in the world for the cause of Christ. Let's close with one more phrase there in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's that last expression, in the day of visitation. Now let's go back and reread the two verses. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fle fleshly lusts which roar against the soul. Have your conversation or your manner of life honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, they see what you're doing, it's good, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. What is the purpose of our lives? I really would like for you to answer that question, but it would be mass chaos if I did that. But if you responded, I wonder what you would say. Some of you would say, well, my purpose is to live a good Christian life. That's a great thing to do, but that's not your purpose. Some of you would say, well, my purpose in life is to be a wonderful Christian parent and model Christian behaviors for my children. And that would be a great thing. 
That's not your purpose in life. Some of you would probably say, well, Neil, obviously. I know what my purpose in life is. My purpose in life is to try to take people to heaven. That's my purpose. And I would say that would be a great thing. That's not your purpose in life. Your purpose in life is singular. And that is to get from here to heaven. It's not about you taking people. It's about you getting to heaven. You say, well, that sounds really selfish. Mark 16, 15 and 16. It says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The purpose for your life is to get yourself to heaven. But you can't go if all you do is focus on yourself in this life. Have you heard the expression before, heaven's doors are closed to him who comes alone? You've probably heard that. I struggle with that expression just a little bit because of this reason. The Bible does not tell us that our responsibility as Christians is to convert people to Christ. That's not what we're trying to do. Well, it's what we're trying to do, but it's not our responsibility to force that conversion on people. It's not my responsibility to baptize people to become Christians. It's not, not, it's not my... Th- what is my thing? It's to teach them. It's to share the gospel. It's their responsibility to obey. Are you with me? I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. My responsibility is to share. Their responsibility is to dare to obey the Lord. So, what is my purpose? My purpose is to get to heaven. But second to that, I need to try to take people with me. And it begins with my influence. That's what this passage is all about. It's about influence. It's about allowing those around us to look at us and say, there's something different. A peculiar people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Looking at us and saying, there's something something different there. I, I can tell that. And And because it's so different and it's so polar opposite to the wickedness I see around me, I want that. I want a piece of that. I want to glorify God, see, that they may by your good works, which they behold, that they may glorify God and do it in the day of visitation. The expression visitation there is the same word that we get bishop from. Episcopal, the episcopate. It's the idea of being overseen. We want to be overseen by God here as conducting ourselves in the way that honors God. We want the people that we come in contact with, that we share the love of Christ for, we want them to come into the presence of God and be overseen by God in a way that magnifies Him and that He is honored. And ultimately, in that final day of visitation, as we stand before the judgment bar of Christ, we want Him to see us and to see those that we've influenced before Him 
so that we can hear those words together. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. And now I'm going to make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. So we close our lesson together. I just want us to reflect and think about this passage for a moment and ask ourselves, are we Christian atheists in the sense that God Almighty is the center of our lives? Or do we have a lot of other little g gods that occupy the throne of our heart? You see, what Peter is talking about there is he's talking about being an atheist from the standpoint of don't let those gods occupy your heart. Just let the Creator do that. They could be, those gods could be any number of things. It could be your job. It could be a f- family member or your family as a whole. It could be a friendship or any other type of relationship could be a hobby. You see, your little G, God, could be anything and everything that stands between you and God. Would you make a decision to put that away? Would you make a decision this very moment, this hour, to change your mind about what's important and choose just to follow God? Call that repentance. Would you confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and be willing to be immersed in water for the remission of your sins? That's what you do to become a Christian. And all of the sins of the past are washed away and you're a Christian on your way home because now you're a stranger and a pilgrim. Something to think about. So together we now stand and as we sing.